Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. I mean, it's an audio medium, but Bill did like a little point with his hello. He did. He's got that little shimmy that makes the... (laughs) It was a real summertime hello. It's good. Um, uh, I have something to share. Okay. Oh, boy. um, Now, people may not realize this because producer Kelly and producer Steve are very good about modulating the volume of my voice, mm. uh, but I'm a rather loud person. Yeah. And it's not Fair. unusual for me to be reprimanded in public by total strangers for being too loud. Or your wife. Or my wife. <laughs> uh, and it happened again. Boy, he done did it again last night. I was out okay. with a friend of mine. We went to Old Town. It's a bar sure. in Manhattan. It's by the old office. And it's like a fairly rowdy place. It's like loud in there. Yeah. And a uh, woman came over to me. And just said, excuse me, your voice is like ringing off the ceiling. Uh, right? No. <laughs> oh, could you just keep no. it down? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bill has been out with me when this has happened before. It Complete would be strangers. so much better yeah. if it was like, excuse me, are you Alex Lawson from the Pro Se Podcast? Well, foolishly, that's my dream, foolishly I thought that that's what might be happening. Uh, but yeah. No, no just getting, very loud. Getting voice recognized versus uh, voice. voice admonished. Yeah, voice shamed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, it happened again. Uh I'm 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 over it mostly. Did I'm you glad. It did you like tone it down <laughs> when you had the admonishment? I, I don't. That's it's yeah. I don't really know. Like I I obviously tried. Like I was trying to be respectful. Well, of that's her the wishes. thing. Like no one really is trying to talk loudly. It just happens. It's just a natural. But you have, you at times have like Austin Powers. I can't control the volume of my voice. Stuff. <laughs> like it's, it's wild. I was, I, I, I've I, been there. I was with a friend who I hadn't seen in many years, and we were off talking about many different things, and I was excited. Talk with my friends, so uh, sometimes my excitement resonates with volume. Well, you know, I'm it. excited to talk with my friends about some other stuff. At a reasonable on volume. Show. <laughs> well, before we get into the first story that you're going to bring to us, Bill, I just want to tell everybody we're going to have Jimmy yeah. Hoover, who's always one of our favorite podcasts. Got a shout out last week from Neil, Neil Katyal. He yeah. did, yeah. So this week we're having Jimmy on, and the reason, a little somber reason, Former Justice Stevens passed away this week, and we want to talk with Jimmy about his legacy, things we should remember about the justice. But before then, we've got some good news to yeah. get to. Yeah. Um, we got a really important ruling out of uh, the Second Circuit here in New York. Very sort of cutting edge, really big, just answered a lot of questions. The court said the videos that play in the back of taxi cabs are really, really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> this so, is true. So annoying, in fact, that the court said that the uh, the city of New York did not violate the First Amendment by banning them in uh, Ubers and Lyfts and other uh, ride hailing. Okay. Cabs. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, okay, so the videos are annoying everyone in cabs, and Uber and Lyft wanted the permission to annoy their passengers as well with the videos. Not exactly. Okay. So, well, 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 tell us. So there's this company called uh, Vugo that they sell a service to Uber drivers and Lyft drivers that allows people to put digital advertising in the back of their car. And advertisers pay this company; they pass along some of the revenue to okay. the drivers. Everybody is happy, except for the passengers, passengers. who then have (laughs) to deal with advertisements in the back of their Uber ride. So the case was filed because New York City, where cabs are more important than anywhere else in the country, they uh, have a ban against these kind of videos in cabs. They are against the rules, and they've been that way for about 20 years. Okay. Uh, but if they were banned, I mean, they, you you can't escape them when you're coming back from the airport or anything. So if they were banned, they get an, they got an exemption or something. So yes, you hit the nail on the head. They uh, for yellow and green cabs for traditional medallion cabs. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, in the so the ban applies to all cars. So okay, it applies yeah. to to Ubers yeah, and Lyfts, but like also to yellow cars. cabs. Yeah. But back in 2005, uh, the the city exempted 
traditional taxis from this thing if the taxis were putting these videos in the back of their cab as part of upgrading the cab and putting um, card reader technology in their cars. So, Which actually makes sense because I remember um, all the years I lived in D.C. I still had friends in New York and would be up here periodically. And I remember the first few years where I was like, oh, my God, you can pay with your credit card in the back of this cab. You cannot do that in D.C. Oh, yeah. Totally. Or at least for a Big long deal. time you couldn't. It was a huge deal at the time. Totally. So, And that was the whole idea was that it was this inducement to um, to put this technology in the back of the car. But um, so this company, Vugo, views it and says, look, this is unconstitutional. This violates the First Amendment. You're going to ban content. You're going to ban speech in certain types of cabs, but you're not going to do it in in yellow cabs. It doesn't make any sense. If if the purpose of your ban is to that these videos are really annoying and you don't want them in cars. Yeah. You're completely undermining the whole purpose of your goal if you're allowing a whole swath of of the city's cars There's to have hundreds, so thousands of taxis. Yeah. It doesn't like, make any sense, <laughs> yes. and, it, and it's and it it disadvantages us. So what the Second Circuit say? So on Tuesday, the Second Circuit pretty pretty forcefully rejected that argument. Um, it, it was for <laughs> for very interesting reasons, but I mean, it all sort of boils down to the the court said that the city had a bona fide interest in shielding citizens from ads that are quote extremely annoying. Yeah. <laughs> it's We've... like the judges on the Second Circuit must have just stepped out of a cab before they decided on this because well, extremely annoying, that's hilarious. It's funny that you bring up who wrote it. It's a friend of the show, Robert Katzman, oh. Uh, oh, the oh, chief right. judge of the yeah. Second Circuit, pro se guest. Yes. Uh, penned the opinion. Um, yeah. But yeah, he basically said that, um, that both the ban itself and the exemption for yellow cabs were were coming from the same place. They they were both serving the same goal because that was really the issue. If they were if one was undermining the other one, then it would be unconstitutional. But yeah. the idea was that both of them were serving this goal of making cab rides better for New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. And um, so for the for the ban itself, it's pretty obvious how it was making rides better. That these are really annoying. And if uh, it's funny, I as I was reading through the opinion, I control F. Uh, the word annoying yeah. comes up 15 times in the opinion. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, I um, mean, because we've said it a couple of times, and I think I, we want to be clear, we're, we're not real. I mean, we're editorializing, but this is also the opinion of the judge, so. Yeah, yes. he cited survey evidence and all sorts of things. Great. But um, So the quote on that front was, quote, the city's asserted goal is to protect its citizens from the offensive sight and sound of advertisements, <laughs> not their content, while they are traveling through the city by car. That interest is clearly substantial. City governments have a substantial interest in cultivating aesthetic values and preventing undue annoyance. So that's on the the that's the idea of like why they were, you know, why they had a good reason for doing this. Yep. And then when you get into the idea of the exemption not really undercutting that, he sort of made a point to say that that it serves the same goal. It serves the idea of making the cab rides better. Quote Both the restriction and the exception concern passenger comfort and convenience. Passengers prefer not to see advertisements while riding in cabs, but they also prefer to be able to pay for their rides by credit card. The city's ban seeks to balance those preferences. So it was it's it's a very pragmatic ruling. It's saying that, like, yes, they they part of part of the city's uh, uh, cabs don't have to face this ban. But they were both meant to make New York City's cab experience better, and that doesn't run afoul of the Constitution. Uh, before we get to Jimmy, just wanted to uh, – got a little interesting update uh, from the industry on the on the legal industry beat here. Um, last week, Kirkland and Ellis, which is sort of a big law stalwart, about as big as they come in the uh, – uh, in, so in the big law circles, um, 
raised some eyebrows when it announced it would be starting a uh, a plaintiff side trial group within the firm, like exclusively plaintiff. Work. Yeah, and we we understand that that's a big deal, and the, and some of the listeners who are sort of in that firm world get that. But yes, talk to us why it's weird for a firm like Kirkland and Ellis to be setting that Definitely. practice up. So I I referenced it already, but Kirkland and Ellis, depending on different metrics, I think Amalaw has had them as like the top as like the most profitable firm for like several years now. Like they, when you think of like a powerful corporate law firm. Yeah. It is Kirkland and Ellis. Um, and like most of those firms, they make their money by by and large by defending cases for corporate behemoths and similarly situated clients. Um, right. So creating a group that is sort of focused on the plaintiff exclusively um, is a very unusual step. Um, now, the firm has sort of done plaintiff's work, like here and there, they'll take plaintiff's cases. And to be clear, there are areas of the law, you know, it's not a it's not a, a, a like thing that firms like this don't sue people. I mean, they, oh no, it happens all you know, the time. Intellectual property, for instance, oh, yeah, plaintiffs absolutely. are often the big the big corporate yes. institutional yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. So, but generally speaking, when we're talking about you know products liability or securities law or anything like that, it's often yeah. little little shops that file those kind of cases. Definitely. Yeah. Well, but what kind of disputes are they going to take up? I mean, that does lead to the question. That's important um, because, like you say, um, before you sort of think about them. You know, we're standing up for. I mean, I don't mean to impugn what they're doing or whatever, but it's like before, like like they're not taking on sort of class actions, like like uh, product liability things or securities class actions uh, against big corporations. And you can see why, because they've defended so many of them sure. that I would imagine the conflicts are like unnavigable. Yeah. Um, but uh, Abraco, our our industry reporter, um, quoted a senior partner that said they would. Be, be looking at uh, starting what he what he deemed commercial disputes exceeding fifty million dollars in total. Oh. So they got to have some skin in the game to uh, to want to take the case. He lists off things like breach of contract, fraud, tortious interference, uh, trade secrets, insurance stuff like yeah. that. Um, but like like I say, they 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 sort of they will only take it if they if they can sort of foresee a fifty million dollar. Uh, windfall for them. So they're still very much in like the corporate game. Um, they're just coming at it from a different, uh, literally the other side of the V here. Um, probably the most uh, interesting wrinkle is that within the group, like a lot of plaintiff's shops, um, they're doing it entirely on the basis of contingency fees. Mm. Which... And that does seem, yeah, that seems like the biggest, you know, putting them in, because like you said, substantively, they're not handling a lot of the same work that a more traditional, like, yes. capital P plaintiff's firm would do, but mm -hmm. but the contingency structure is is borrowing from that world. Yes, uh, and that's, again, for the, for the non-legal nerds in the crowd, that means basically you do not get paid unless you are victorious or you get some... Uh, sizable sum for your client. Your your payment is contingent on the result of the case. That's why it's called contingency fees. Well, that also makes sense with the figure you cited there, looking for disputes of fifty million or above, because yeah. they don't want to get into this unless the contingency fee could be. Yeah, right. definitely. Um, and so, like I say, they've they've done stuff like this before, and clearly structuring the fees in this nature uh, for this group. Um, this is sort of like within the within big law circles. It's sort of seen as they're they're gambling on their own abilities to bring and win, you know, many plaintiff's cases. Um, sort of remains to be seen if other sort of big shops will follow their lead, but it's definitely something if you're, uh, if you're sort of an industry watcher, definitely, uh, definitely an interesting development. Retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens died this week at the age of 99. 
When he retired, he was the third longest serving justice in U.S. history who made a big mark on American jurisprudence. This week, we're joined by Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover to talk about Stephen's legacy. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Hey, thanks for having me, Amber. I think at this point, most people have heard that Justice Stevens passed away. But Jimmy, we have you on the show today because I know you can give us more insight into his bio and his time on the bench. Can you tell us more about him? Sure. Well, I would say the first thing is Justice Stevens was a Republican appointee of uh, President Gerald Ford. And uh, over the course of his you know, 34 years on the bench, he was considered originally a kind of a moderate conservative. But by the time he retired in 2010 under President Barack Obama, he had kind of carved out this legacy as one of the court's liberal stalwarts and uh, basically sided with the uh, Democratic appointees in, in case after case in issue after issue. And so that was kind of one of the things that he's most remembered for. Yeah. And one of the running themes that uh, after he passed this week was the discussion of whether or not the court had moved and he had stayed in the same place or he had truly moved. And it's, it's, you know, it was a lot of interesting discussion about that. Um, Jimmy, that was a sort of a snapshot. Can we zoom in on, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you look at someone like Stevens, where Obviously, he has some majority opinions that we're gonna we can talk about, but he's maybe best known for some of his dissenting opinions in in pretty famous rulings, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that one of the more notable things about Justice Stevens's tenure was that for the majority of it, he was outgunned by, you know, as you say, the conservative justices to his right, uh, who had replaced, you know, some of the more moderate, uh, some of their more moderate predecessors. Uh, so, for instance, in in, in 2000, uh, in late 2000, uh, Justice Stevens wrote a, a famous dissent in Bush v. Gore, essentially calling what the majority had, the five justice majority had done, a travesty and uh, diminishing the uh, public's confidence. Um, in the independence of the of the court for stopping the Florida recount, which, as we all know, kind of uh, led uh, President George Bush to, to take the presidency. Right, right. There was there uh, years later in uh, 2008, uh, Justice Scalia in the conservatives again had uh, a five justice majority in which they um, held that the Second Amendment uh, created an individual right to bear arms, and they struck down a uh, handgun ban in the District of Columbia. And uh, Justice Stevens really uh, again had a forceful dissent there, um, essentially saying that the conservatives have gotten the history all wrong and totally ignored the first clause of the uh, Second Amendment about uh, a well-regulated militia. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's those are some of the things that he was known for. Uh, perhaps his most famous dissent was uh, one of his last um, in the 2009 term. Uh, uh, Justice Stevens uh, wrote a 90-page scathing dissent um, when uh, again another five-justice major- conservative majority. Uh, struck down campaign finance regulations in the case Citizens United. Um, And Justice Stevens... uh I, again, warned that uh, what the what the court was doing was essentially welcoming in uh, hordes of dark money um, to influence uh, future campaigns and elections, and uh, you know unleashing uh, corporate treasury funds to spend unlimited sums on uh, you know picking winners and losers in in, in American elections. Uh, yeah, actually, you can you can really ahead. see why he um, was termed a liberal lion. You see yeah. that in a lot of headlines. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because. He really was staking out in very strident terms in some of these dissents. Um, his language was very clear what he felt about these issues. Well, and, you know, 10 years later, well, from Heller, even longer. But, I mean, these these issues haven't diminished at all, that they're right. still they're still really oh, flashpoints, these, yeah. these two big rulings. They're some of the more famous rulings the court's made in recent years. And, Jimmy, in that Citizens United one, he read his dissent from the bench, right? 
That's correct. Uh, reading your dissent from the bench uh, on the Supreme Court is considered kind of a historical uh, symbol of you know your strong. If you really hate a decision that the majority comes up with, you read your dissent from the bench. Like, That's you right. people are going to hear about it now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're going to have to sit through while I kind of tell you why you're wrong. Um, but as Justice Stevens was reading through uh, some of the passages of his opinion, uh, court watchers at the time noticed that he was kind of stumbling over his words. He failed to gather any real uh, momentum over the course of uh, his, his reading and uh, after he stepped down from the bench that day he noticed you know he felt that something was wrong and he, and he went to see a doctor and uh, who later you know told him that he had suffered a, a mini stroke and the episode was actually enough to convince him uh, to step down from the bench and later wow. that term he, he tendered his his resignation to uh, President Obama and he was uh, you know eventually replaced uh, by Justice Elena Kagan. So we we spent some time talking there about how he was known for these dissents, but he did have at least one seminal ruling that was uh, where he was the majority and the author of that ruling. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So perhaps his uh, most enduring uh, precedent under his name is the 1984 case Chevron USA Inc. Incorporated versus uh, NRDC. And in that case, um, it was a it was a it was basically an environmental case in which they were fighting over, uh, you know, Reagan administration EPA rules, which were a little bit, uh, you know, um, loose on industry and, and environmental groups were fighting those. And, and what the court said was, we're going to side with the Reagan administration's EPA. And as a rule of thumb going forward, um, judges should defer to an agency like the EPA um, in their interpretation of uh, a statute that is ambiguous. Yeah. So, for the first time, he announced a kind of a two-part test that courts reviewing agency um, interpretations uh, should follow. And the first part is, you know, whether the uh, statute at issue is ambiguous or not. And, it, you know, if it's if it's not, if it's plain and, and the agency got it right, then, you know, that's the end of the case. But if it is ambiguous, um, the courts are then to ask, you know, whether it was a reasonable interpretation. So the whole driving idea was that judges should not substitute, you know, their judgment of policy for experts like you know the people in the in the EPA. Yeah, like much of administrative law, it can come off <laughs> as a little bit dry, but it it you know it has sweeping implica- implications all the way up to today, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the 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 decision kind of rocked the administrative law world, and there is an administrative law world, which I should say at first. Um, yes. And it, it was you know it's been cited probably more it's one of the most well-cited uh, opinions of Supreme Court history and it's discussed in you know uh, you know a- as many l- law review articles as as things like Marbury versus Madison yeah um, right because it, it poses similarly gigantic questions about the way that our constitutional system works the way that the courts are able to review something that the that its equal branch does is mm-hmm. it couldn't you can't get much more fundamental and this is the kind of thing that um, no matter how long ago you were in law school, if you were there past this decision, <laughs> this is, you can't forget this. Right. It comes up repeatedly. It's one of the core things where you just, fingers crossed, this comes up on your bar exam. You'll get that one right. But now Chevron is in the in in uh, the 2019 moving forward court is in somewhat in doubt, right, Jimmy? Yeah, that's right. Uh, for, the, for several years now, um, conservatives 
uh, especially conservative legal scholars, have taken aim at Chevron as possibly being unconstitutional in that um, it kind of rests from uh, courts, Article Three courts, uh, their constitutional duty, in their words, uh, to interpret the law and kind of passes it off to these, you know, uh, bureaucratic agencies like the EPA. And so that's seen as uh, kind of a big problem among uh, opponents of, uh, you know, the so-called administrative state. I mean, you saw a lot of this criticism bubble out of the Obama administration, uh, which kind of uh, inspired a lot of ire on the part of conservatives for, you know, their their wielding of uh, of regulatory policy to 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 get things done. And so. Chevron has been a tool that agencies can rely on, you know, years, over years and years, um, to kind of defeat these court fights, and 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 they see it as unfair and possibly unconstitutional. And uh, you know, one of its chiefest critics is now sitting on the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, and uh, the White House, the Trump White House, basically even admitted that his opposition to the legal doctrine and, and the administrative uh, state writ large is. Chief among the reasons why he was actually chosen for the Supreme Court. So it's part of the conservative agenda, really, to, to, to kind of dismantle this mammoth uh, precedent of Justice Stevens. So yes, on, on this score, his, his legacy is very much uh, still at risk. Uh, Jimmy, before we let you go, uh, we've been talking quite a lot about Stevens, the jurist, um, but you also did a really interesting story for us that talked about Stevens, the man. Uh, you talked to people who worked with him and for him. Uh, what did they have to say just sort of about his, his demeanor and the way he went about his job? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, from the standpoint of his demeanor, it's pretty well known that uh, Justice Stevens was famously courteous on the bench um, at oral arguments, beginning pretty much every question of the arguing advocate with, may I ask you a question, which I don't know if you've seen a Supreme Court argument lately, but they don't. <laughs> <laughs> usually give you that courtesy. Um, and that was off the bench as well. You know, his former clerks uh, basically speak of an incredibly humble uh, jurist who, despite his, you know, significant achievements in life from, you know, service in World War II to the Seventh Circuit to uh, being on the Supreme Court for decades, um, uh, just just someone who was very open to, uh, you know, different ideas and um, insight from, you know, uh, people just starting out their careers out of law school. And that's kind of unfailingly what, what you'll hear from from his former clerks. There's that's one, classic Chicago guy stuff. I mean, that's, right. I mean, that's, that, that, that's just was, classic stuff. And I was going to say, what happened with you, Alex? Because I don't know if that <laughs> holds up. Oh, cold. Ice cold. Uh, Jimmy, before we let you go, I, I also would be remiss if I didn't mention, you actually got to interview Stevens a couple years ago. So do you have any, any um, anecdotes you want to tell about your time getting to talk to him in person? Yeah, so it was it was 2017, and I had the opportunity to interview Justice Stevens in his chambers at the Supreme Court uh, for a series that we were doing. And well, first thing I'll just say is <laughs> this was this was a little while ago, uh, and uh, I, w I was with a uh, photographer uh, who was going to capture the interview. And of course, uh, the uh, chamber uh, his judicial staff kind of uh, greeted the photographer, assuming, of course, that you know he had about two decades on me, that he would be the one <laughs> interviewing me. So um, when I told her that it was actually going to be Baby face Jimmy Hoover. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So that, that took a little while. But uh, no, again, I could totally see where people are coming from and saying that he's just a really nice and warm uh, person. Uh, he had no problem sitting with me for you know over an hour discussing everything from his love uh, of the of the Chicago Cubs and and, and, and witnessing the called shot. Was to a, he, his, he, he was at the Babe Ruth game. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He quips it's his, his most famous uh, claim to fame. But, um, <laughs> 
you know, but he's also uh, unflinchingly open about um, issues that probably other members of the Supreme Court, sitting or not, wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole from uh, President Trump's travel ban. He was not a fan to, you know, even the criticism of his uh, Chevron decision. And he said basically to me that, you know, if, if, if the court is going to reconsider um, something like Chevron, which has been cited thousands and thousands of times, he said it suggests to me that uh, the issue of stare decisis or respect for precedent doesn't really have much of a future anymore. And, and I think that uh, that is a sentiment that's shared by uh, a lot of the liberal members of the court who've been kind of fighting to, to uphold his legacy on that score. Yeah, Jimmy, thanks for telling us about what it was like to meet him in person. It's um, such an interesting life for us to reflect on and, and his impact on the law. I agree. Thanks for having me. our show with something offbeat and Alex I think you have one to talk about today I mean nothing says offbeat like Roger Stone he is a character it's true been offbeat his whole life yes um uh Republican he he's always described as a Republican operative and operative I, is such a vague word uh it's the operative word um and I well he was literally involved in Watergate yes right? yes, like yes. He, yeah. he seems like an operative I know. I mean, I wonder what I would have to do to be considered an operative. Of yeah. Something. Oh, I, I just don't, I don't think you should aspire to legal that. news operative Alex Lawson. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll work on it. Anyway, yes. Um, he is a uh, he's been in Republican sort of policy circles for a long time. Political circle, not policy yeah. circles. But, um, and he was uh, an ally of Donald Trump in the run up to the election. Anyway, he is awaiting trial in Washington D.C. for uh, allegedly obstructing the Mueller probe. Right. Uh, and that's th- those proceedings have been uh, a little strange. Uh, he's a very active social media user, and he's been tweeting and Instagramming and Facebooking about the trial um, in sort of open defiance of a gag order from the judge down there, Amy Berman Jackson. And she's had enough because this week she said, no more posting, Raj. Never tweet. We, I mean, that's like sort of a joke on Twitter, but it's literally coming out of a, di- a district judge now. It says... No Twitter, no Facebook, no Instagram for about, you, Roger Stones. About anything. About not anything. Ju- not just about this case. That's the thing. Like that that was the gag order where it's, it was it's like too tempting. <laughs> there was a gag order that was like, Don't talk about the case in public, <laughs> sir. Right. Sir, sir. Yeah, right. And uh, oh, I forgot to mention at some at uh, I think it was in like February or something. Uh, what prompted the gag order was he circulated a picture on... Uh, it was like a light death threat, right? On Instagram yeah, yeah, yeah. of the judge in what looked a lot like crosshairs uh, of, yeah. a- of Amy Berman Jackson. Um, the case is, like, like I say, it's still going on. Um, and she has now said, okay, not only can you not talk about the case on social media, no social media for you at all. Now, she only said those three. Um, I don't know if he'll go on Nextdoor or he'll go on, <laughs> on LinkedIn for articles. Yeah. But the, yeah, he said no Twitter, no Facebook, Starts no Instagram. posting on Craigslist. Yeah, right. Looking for looking for political operatives to commit <laughs> light crimes. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it was just a matter of time in the world we live in for judges to start to have to say this. You know, federal courts have a lot of power. You know, they can they can compel people to do things. They can put you away forever. They can put you to death in some cases. And now they can tell you not to post. Honestly, I wish they would say that to everybody. Yes, that would be good. <laughs> just a nationwide injunction on using on using social media. Yeah, for at least a little while. For everyone. Yeah. 
for every well, you you love sort of unilateral declarations of correct. Things. Yeah, uh, I, I have I, I take draconian <laughs> takes. Yes, yeah. it's true. And yeah. when you take those draconian takes, a judge is going to tell you someday to stop tweeting. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, you know, a note from Amy Berman Jackson to everybody: maybe just 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 take the weekend off or something. Uh, but for Roger Stone, it's going to be a lot longer, uh, at least for the duration of the trial. So that's where we're at on that. Uh, I would Roger say Stone. we should go tweet about this case. No. But no. Let's let's go not tweet about the case. Yeah, that's go, what I'm saying. You know, go sit on a dock somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Just sit a few plays out. Crack a book. Right. Nice oaky shard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, thanks for bringing that one today, Alex. Yeah, sounds good. And for being with me, Bill. I'm going to go pop an oaky shard, as Alex <laughs> said. Yeah. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Jimmy Hoover, and contributing reporters, Abe Rico and Corey Atkinson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to our show anywhere you find podcasts. And if you like it, please leave us a written review. Thanks and see you again next week.